I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Uh, My guest today is the author of this, That Sucked, Now What? Dr. Anita Bushan is uh, an inspirational speaker, an author, a podcast host. I will be on her podcast. We recorded myself and Alice for Unstressable, my book, which is coming out, our next book, which is coming out in end of April. So Nita will release somewhere mid-April on the podcast that's called The Brave Table, was a very interesting conversation, so I urge you to go there. Nita is a wonderful friend who has constant contributions to the world of well-being. Her passion is really to help people find joy in difficult times. And uh, I think it shows from the title of the book, the subtitle is How to Embrace the Joy in Chaos and Find Magic in the Mess. So, uh, yeah, I think we are at a time, Nita, where there is a lot of mess in the world. So very timely indeed. The book was out in 2023, February, if I remember correctly. Paperback is out in January this year. Lovely, lovely read, uh, but let's uh, spend some time to talk about it. First of all, thank you for for the time and thank you for doing this when you're jet lagged. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it is, when were you back? No, I got back on uh, Friday, actually, uh, Thursday night. So oh, that's not too bad. Friday. That's the fourth day now, right? Yeah, it's the fourth day. My experience <laughs> is that the worst day is the fourth day, actually. Is that is not, it really? Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the fourth okay. day, I, I basically, you know, this is when I normally make up my mind that I will never travel again. And then you, know, yeah. you forget on the fifth day, as you know. So. This is, yeah. And I, I kind of feel like the experience of emotional roller coasters, like, oh my gosh, you know, where am I? What, what am I, what am I doing? So it's, uh, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Very good. So <laughs> I, I know you were uh, in, you were traveling for a reason, but uh, I think maybe if you're open to the idea, um, mm-hmm. the book gives it away, like that sucked. Now what? What sucked? Would you mind telling us why you decided to write this? Yeah, so I have had many sucky moments and (laughs) that would be an understatement. There's a paragraph in the book where if they were giving, you know, an an EGOT for, you know, the, the, the awards for it, I'd probably win some sort of the trauma Olympics or something like that. And, um, you know, this is by any means a competition. I had gone through a lot of early losses and uh, having born and raised with Filipino Indian parents in the States, they kind of migrated, you know, for that air quotes, American dream. They were really hard workers and I was the, you know, oldest of three kids. And of course, being the oldest daughter, there's a lot of these unsaid obligations. They came from the East, et cetera. And also, I think that there was, of course, this pressure. And so by the time I was 10, I became a caretaker to my mom. And my mom had gone through uh, various iterations of what was breast cancer at the time. And then literally from 10 to 16, I would spend my evenings, weekends, she would be in and out of hospital settings. And so that was really kind of the core upbringing for me and my my two younger brothers. I was 10 and they were eight and five. And so at 16, the cancer had spread to her lungs and she transitioned. And so kind of family dynamics at the time. My dad was this Punjabi, stern Indian man. And in that culture, it's not known for a male widow to kind of take on the responsibilities of of three kids, let alone three kids under 16. And he went into this severe depression. I think there's a lot of stigma with you know, how do you function in in society, et cetera. 
And I was kind of, I was always told I'm resilient, I'm strong. And so I had a very good idea of what resiliency was. For me, it meant strong. Nita, you're strong. You're, you have this, you're the eldest. And so again, a lot of internal pressure. And so a year after my mom died, my brother DJ was, he was 15 years old and he was coming out of his high school and he had an asthma attack and fully collapsed. And they took him, they tried to revive him, but there was no chance he had um, he had transitioned that day. And that happened to be on my youngest brother's 12th birthday. And so that, again, it was a year after my mom had transitioned. So a lot of pain, a lot of grief, a lot of loss, uh, so sudden. We couldn't wrap our heads around it, honestly. And the only thing my father knew how to, what to say and kind of how to cope with this extenuating excruciating pain was, all right, straight A's, work, go to school. And that became my coping mechanism. And not only that, I learned early on how to, I guess, deal with family dynamics and human connection. I was able to, because I, I didn't really have a normal childhood. My dad, he really tried his best to make sure that we were having friends. And even at 16, 17, teenagers are already cruel. They don't really know what to say when you're going through loss. And all you want to do is actually fit in. And I remember there were times, especially during this period where I would have my friends just come over and it would just be, you know, they would be singing or, you know, we'd be playing board games. And there was some sense of, of normalcy. I, I remember wanting to escape so many times and now having the pressure of, I'm the only female in the house. And that meant to work one, two, three jobs to put and help my my dad put food on the table. And then two years after that, we had the diagnosis that my father had stage four lung cancer. They found an inoperable tumor. And that was the, the doctor said that he had 10 months to live and he sure lived up until those 10 months. And so just shy of my 19th birthday, I was 18, I found myself orphaned. And now the person taking care of my youngest brother, mm. who was almost, who was 14 at the time. And so this time before I kind of spearheaded into my 20s, there was a big, huge sense of what am I meant to do? What is this all about? What is this world? What is what is this all about? And so I, I remember early on questioning even faith, of course. And I even write about uh, the first part of my book, I write about, you know, the chip on your shoulder. Sometimes yeah. when, when, when things happen or when you have, you know, it may not be a loss, it may be a setback, a challenge, uh, you didn't get the promotion, et cetera. You worked so hard on something and now you have this kind of vigor, this this, you know, these wings almost on your back to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And that was kind of this sense that I felt that I wanted to take my younger brother and I out of this dark cloud. And honestly, I had no idea if this dark cloud would ever let up because that was yeah, literally my, my entire childhood. But what I did know was, okay, I went on to, to dental school because my coping mechanism was, all right, overwork, overcompensate, overachieve. And of course, it's part of my tiger parent upbringing as well. Mm. So I spearheaded into my 20s. I, uh, I went to dental school and we did do some therapy, some talk therapy. We had an enormous amount of family around us, but that really started to shape my you know, intentions, my goals, in, in life, which were all outward, outward success. It was outward achievements, accolades. The ego was really driving it in many ways, but it was a survival mechanism. It was how to not feel the enormous amount of pain, especially because early on I was told, okay, you're a warrior, Nita, you got this. And so I was just like bulldozing and charging through. And so in 
I would say my mid to late 20s, I would find love. And that's one of the areas that I was probably not the most adept, meaning that I was so afraid of being alone that I would attach myself to these interesting, unhealthy, and even sometimes toxic relationships. And so to the point of in my late 20s, I, I get married and we have, you know, these amazing trappings of success. I have, you know, all the lavish, et cetera, things and everyone in our family circle, you know, you're the one that's the 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 golden child that everybody kind of uh, compares everyone else to. It's like, you've made it, you've done it because I had a, a booming practice. I wasn't even 30 at the time, uh, you know, graduated all of the things. And I was a cosmetic dentist and I was married. And I, I remember vividly, you know, December 31st, this is 2011, where I had this overwhelming amount of just anxiety and fear and just rage and, and all of these feelings that started to bubble up. And it was some of those same feelings that I put away in a back closet when they told me my mom's cancer spread to her lungs and her brain and they couldn't do anything about it. When they told me my dad had stage four lung cancer and that he only had 10 months to live. When I found out that my brother had taken his last breath and this feeling of, oh my goodness, I don't, I know something is going to happen, this change, and I don't really feel safe. Yeah. That was December 31st, 2011, where I looked at myself in the mirror and I looked at all of the trappings of success and I felt that I was spiritually dead. Uh, physically, I was in a very toxic situation and that was the first time I admitted to myself. I looked in the mirror in my master bedroom and I said, I need help. Because for the first time ever, I thought, okay, I was, I'm strong. Everyone's been telling me I'm strong, strong my whole life. But this is the first time I was allowing myself to break and let people in. And that would then open the doors and this cascade of the next seven years of my life where it would be all around um, full breakdown and full allowing myself to heal and uh, letting people in, in the closest people to me, who of course, everyone knew that I was in this kind of situation, but didn't really know because I was keeping things uh, and shoving things under a rug. And so that was, I guess I would say my my first awakening into these sucky moments, but to say, all right, now what? Now what? That that has happened and for me, this now what piece really looked like the beginning formations of what I talk about in the book, um, which is called your bounce factor. And it's really this, you know, internal foundation of what happens to us after these these sucky moments. And not just for us to be strong, air quotes, so that we can rise up again. But what happens when we actually can bounce back? Because the actual Latin root of the word resilier is to, to bounce. Mm. And if we are looking at some of the factors that help us bounce, then we can not only bounce, but be able to fly forward through some of the obstacles and also begin to integrate those pieces. I want to first just visit some of those emotions, which I think are very important for. I always tell people before you go into thinking about what you can do, there is a lot that is uh, found in the sense of awareness of how hard life can be, right? Mm -hmm. And for, you know, for many of us, we don't imagine that our own test is is not the most difficult test out there. When in reality, when you look at the stories of life of others, it's just somehow always quite challenging. Uh, there is always someone who has a bigger challenge than than us. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, so many of my listeners will know that in the last few weeks, I first lost my sister-in-law, which was 
truly, truly, truly my sister. And, you know, so much love uh, that she brought into my life 40 some years. And uh, she left us, you know, as a result of a heart attack when she was taking care of my sick brother who was diagnosed with several cancers. And then a few weeks later, as we observed his recovery and, you know, doing better after maybe a year of, of treatment, something completely out of the blue, uh, you know, just takes him from us. And I get a lot of people that will tell me that, you know, losing Ali, my son, and then losing two of my closest people. And then a week later, my mom falls and breaks a, a few bones and so on. And you think people look at me and go like, oh my God, you're so resilient. Oh my God, this is, you know, we, we hope you have strength. And I always say, well, I have to say, I, I'm sure there are others who are going through rougher than this and much tougher lives than this. And when you tell your story of, of having to go through three losses in four years, mm -hmm at age 16 and to have to really attend to your your sick mother since age 10 mm -hmm. uh, you know that's that is by far like a hundred times more challenging than what i have to go through when i'm in my 50s having seen life and so on so my question is very straightforward it seems that for most of us who have gone through those kinds of tragedies or or traumas life tends to, to look a little easier afterwards. It's almost as if we sort of like, yeah, you look back at it and as you tell your story, it feels that you still love your life somehow, that you're still grateful for your life somehow, that you look back at all of this and you're not victimizing yourself somehow. And I found that those who go through more of life's tests tend to find more joy in life in general and more appreciation for the fact that life comes with a lot of tests. Is, is that something that you would share? Oh my goodness. I feel like I, I think that you, you cannot take the joy out of me. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> and I think that, well, and, and to your point, I think that even with my subtitle, how to embrace the joy and chaos and find magic in the mess. I think at the end of the day, it's really about the duality and, and the paradox of some of these really big, heavy emotions. And I honestly couldn't quite, obviously I didn't have the language for it while going through, you know, multiple tragedies, but Take, for example, any listener that's listening to you right now, maybe they're thinking and they're going through this thinking, wow, I just, I just had a breakup or I just, I'm going yeah. through a divorce or I just had a friend breakup and, and, and this was my best friend for, for several years, or there was some sort of a betrayal. These are still losses. They're still, they're still losses and they will have this like soupy mix of, you know, complex emotions and and why are they complex well because we sometimes villainize even feeling these really big emotions where yeah. it's so easy for us to numb and distract and avoid and bury ourselves in work and do any of the addictions i know i fell into the addiction of just working and, and that was a coping mechanism. And, and I know many of us overachievers or high achievers, we tend to do this to avoid pain or, you know, for proving ourselves, et cetera. And not that it's a bad thing. It's just a coping mechanism. And so to be okay with grief or to be able to feel the bigness of grief then we should be able to feel its opposite, the bigness of joy. And I remember, Mo, one of the times when I was in my teenage years, and of course I was still a teenager, of course I was still going to have little crushes on people. And I remember one day going to visit my mom after school because it was I grew up in Chicago and it was on the way home. And I remember there was a boy at the coffee shop and I still remembered going to see my mother who was mostly dying in the ICU, but I was still able to get butterflies in my stomach because I saw this, mm -hmm. you know, this, this boy at the, at the coffee shop and he smiled at me or something like that as a 16 or 15 year old. Right. And so to be able to feel again, the paradox of those emotions. And there were times even throughout some of those phases 
the loss of my my brother where it's like I did not want to feel I did not want to go to see a movie with my friends. I did not want to go to a concert. And I remember vividly my dad said, "No, you will go." Mm. Because we couldn't be in this there's only so much of this cloud of deep sadness that you can be in for so long so that we can experience this contrast of life because all of us are going to have several iterations of this human experience and you know i used to have this kind of you know in psychology it's like this survivor's guilt yeah you know why my brother and why not me yeah and so you know you you even overcompensate on that level and i shouldn't be feeling good for myself because my dad just went and lost two really big people in his his life and so and this is where a lot of us people pleasers or givers or martyrs if we have this archetype we kind of run ourselves to the ground thinking that we don't deserve love we're not worthy of it or that we have to somehow work even harder to prove ourselves worthy yeah do you remember you know your 20s in comparison to your friends so i you hosted me and alice the the other day and Alice again had several losses in her life and you know she would always tell the story about how she sometimes would you know drink for example in her 20s most of her friends would be drinking to have fun and she would be drinking to escape right to to sort of almost numb the that that uh, constant despair of why is life doing this to me why is it me and not everyone else mhm yeah how how were your 20s were you only working what what was going on so it's it's interesting and i i talk about this in the in the book uh when i turned when i turned 20 this was a year after my dad died and i remember so vividly i wanted to i i just i wanted to escape i yeah. wanted to escape this 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 dark cloud that literally was with me since i mean the most formative years of my life since i was 10 Yeah. and i didn't know any better but i just knew my soul was really it's like i needed to get out of this this bubble of chicago and just where i was and i ended up going to college uh in chicago loyola university chicago and they have they had other campuses uh globally and i remember seeing in you know the bathroom stalls they used to have these like flyers with you know the the numbers that you take out and it says uh, apply here if you want to go and study abroad this summer and 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 in rome roma italy mm. and i said oh my gosh this might be a sign mm. <laughs> you know it was one of those things and i'm like i need to you know i need to get out of here and I remember having to convince my my Filipino grandmother and my Indian um bua which is who I was sharing and mentioning about before my dad's sister mm -hmm. who to actually take care of my youngest brother if I would go away and they were my matriarchs and they were like you are not there's no way we just had how can you even think about leaving when we've had all of this grief and loss and I said no matter what i am going and i just felt the urge and as soon as i got the admission slip and in a scholarship to go i said i'm 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 out yeah because there was something just begging in my soul to to leave and so at 20 this is the first time i step foot not only uh you know in somewhere where i just do not know a lick of italian um <laughs> in a very new place uh which is you know no one none of my friends you know were were there with me it was it was me by myself with you know hundreds of other students all around the world and for the first time i got to be nita without having this label okay, of, of course Yeah. She's the one that had oh, the losses. Yeah. She's yeah. the one she, you know, you have you heard her story. And because it was a big thing for a young people. Yeah. Obviously. And I got to just be, hi, I'm Nita. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. And it was it was like this sense of freedom that I I never tasted, I never knew. I had this weight had lifted off of my shoulders like 
I didn't have to worry about these weird calls in the middle of the night if somebody was not breathing or if they had to do something to one of my family members or, you know, you just have this visceral central nervous system response constantly. And I felt like for the first time I could actually be a kid, um, a teenager. <laughs> And I remember going to the Coldplay concert because they were playing in Rome and it was just, I felt like I was, you know, on top of the world because I got to choose what my story was. And it was also, so I, I was, I was there also, you know, I started to take uh, Italian literature and Italian philosophy and it was the very first time I was exposed to the work of the Italian philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, mm -hmm. and Stoicism. And I remember having to really write my first essay on what that meant and how it has shaped our lives in some way. And that was the first meaning, the amor fati, that came up during that semester abroad, which was the love of one's fate. And that stuck with me. Because, you know, instead of cursing my fate or just wishing that I hadn't gone through any of this, that I, I was wishing I could just be a normal teenager to fit in, especially in having these like conversations because it would still come up. Hey, where are you from? What do your parents do? And then I knew, and this is part of, you know, the bounce factor that I now teach, which is be able to make peace with your past forgive your past, be able to understand and, and appreciate your upbringing, which is, you know, the love of one's fate, amor fati. And that was one of the big things that I really got. And that fully kind of shifted the trajectory of my life. You asked about certain kind of numbing behaviors that I had. I think the biggest thing for me, you know, having watched all three of my family members pass on through medical diseases that were out of my control. I became a wellness, I want to say, <laughs> addict. Mm. I was so, um, I think I was very much so rigid for myself. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was not yeah. a, I even was one of those who would judge other people for, for drinking or putting harmful things in th into their body because mm. I firsthand knew some of those effects. So I had very much a very opposite response. But what I did have was this like wonderlust of travel. Now 62 countries in, oh, I still wow. do have that wonderlust for travel and experiences. But what the the biggest thing that I would say in my 20s was my pattern in relationships. And this was male relationships. And this idea of holding on and then overlapping relationships because of this fear of never wanting to be alone. And so I would remember always having a group of friends around. And it was very easy for me to make friends and connect because at an early age, I had to learn how to make my parents feel really good, especially in these super uncomfortable positions that they were in, in hospital settings. And so that was, I think, to this day, still a gift of mine is to help people feel seen and heard, but of course, at the detriment of myself and mm. putting myself last because I always heard, and this is a very like Indian, Filipino, Asian upbringing saying is your happiness is other people's happiness, right? Yeah, yeah. Your happiness is when you see everybody else happy. And I never understood really what self-love or this idea of coming back home to your own sovereignty. I never understand what that meant until the next break, mm. which I would probably say, you know, then entering my 30s was this huge radical earthing of all of these concepts of what I thought unconventional career looked like. And this linear path to, you know, air quotes, success, because all I knew growing up was doctor, dentist, lawyer, engineer. And <laughs> so Asian. <laughs> it's so 
I mean, we, we do we do the same too in the Middle East. It's like if you're not a doctor and not an engineer, what what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's it, and and so I think that when I when I reached this breaking point of when my life was threatened, I had to haphazardly leave in the middle of the night. In the introduction of the book, I talk about having so much shame and so much guilt of what will people think if they knew the truth? What will people think that if they knew that I wasn't actually in a happy marriage, if they knew that it was very unhealthy, there was toxicity, there was abuse. And I then had to really radically dive into, you know, the second component of this bounce factor that I talk about, which is coming back to your radical self-awareness of, and this is the the self-responsibility piece, which is, well, what was your role in this? And I think that oh, that wow. might be triggering for some. That is very triggering, especially when life has not been easy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was a huge turning point for me because, and and that's where everything shifted. And I had to ask the question, what did I need? And what was I doing to protect myself? No, hold on. I, I, I want to stay here for a minute because this is a yeah. very, very, um, I mean, if you decided to take your life circumstances in your early thirties and blame that on life, no one would blame you right? You, you can easily say, look, you know, I've tried my best, but look at what life is throwing at me. It's a very easy place to assign the responsibility externally, right? And, oh, yeah. and, and yet you talk about, I'm in a wrong marriage, uh, being abused somehow, and I have to leave and I have get that realization that I'm in the wrong marriage because I chose something or I did something and it's part of my responsibility. That's that's actually life-changing for a lot of people when they realize. And I, I find it really difficult to bring this up uh, all the time, but I, I, you know, I always try to hint that at least partially, whatever it is that anyone is going through today, at least partially is the result of something they contributed to the world that they're in. Now, how do you do that when you've lost so much at such a young age, you know, you have absolutely every excuse to say, my life was set out for me and I just had to follow. Well, I think that there is this idea of yes, we can we can sit in the suck, meaning like the <laughs> yeah. the soupy mess that we are in and there's two schools of thought now that I've kind of been on both sides of the coin. There's the one group where it's it's easy to say and I'm sure some of you listening watching this are probably like, yes, I know. I know that relative who is constantly saying, "Oh my gosh, my headache is bigger than yours" or Yes, and I I had this other you know massive failure, and I can't believe I can't get anything right. And so they're they're it's they're constantly pinning themselves down, and they're literally sitting in the suck, and they can't get out of it. And there's there's so many different they go they go in a circle, and there's a constant circle, and they just can't take the action to shift their life forward. And then there's the other group, and the other group is, ooh, it's too painful. I'm not going to sit in the suck. Therefore, I am going to do whatever it takes. And you'll see this with these warrior memes, and you'll see this people doing these uh, extreme sports or extreme things. You probably even see like military memes that are, you know, I'm so strong, I'm so resilient, and they keep pushing forward. And this is really true in sports as well. You get an injury, all right, let's let's get back out there on the field. Mm. And this is that mentality and the mindset where they don't want to sit in that painful, awful suck because it is too painful. It's it's unfathomable. It's, oh my gosh, if I even allow myself to feel and experience these awful waves of pain and these feelings, am I going to get stuck there? Mm. And we know that now, I mean, this is also in my book, it takes 60 to 90 seconds. This is social scientists have stated that 60 to 90 seconds to fully feel a feeling. Yeah. And we're so afraid to feel that sadness. We're so afraid to feel that, that 
the jealousy. We're so afraid to feel that betrayal. We're so afraid to feel that rage and anger that we, we bypass it. We say, oh, I know better. And for me, it was very, I, after I fully, fully hit what I'd like to call the, you know, the full rock bottom or, uh, in part three of the book, I call it the fall. I had this, this, this big fall and I knew that, all right, there is, I knew I was getting ignited. There was yeah. this fire under my belly that if I were to stay in this particular relationship, what would happen? Or what's the other thing? And I, and I know for anybody who's been through any sort of abusive situation, I totally understand. And maybe you might want to talk to a uh, somebody that is trauma-informed and a mental health specialist to really walk you through this. And uh, there is there another way? Can you actually step out? It's so much easier to be in a familiar space. And yeah. this is for all of us because change is so hard that we go back to the same kinds of toxic relationships, whether it's friendships, parents, et cetera, uh, love relationships, because it's safe. It's, it, you, yeah. know, you know the familiar. Yeah, you we, don't li we, know. we like the familiar, even if it's painful, basically. Of course, and and you talk about this as well. And when we step out, and we there's the pain is so great that you have to make a different decision. You get that cancer diagnosis, or you get this weird diagnosis that you've exhausted all of your faculties in the current medical system or wherever you are at that you're you are left with a choice am i going to walk a different path yeah and that's the that's the ignition that's the second stage of this fly forward framework and then we get into the third stage which is you're rising and for me it was leaving my house haphazardly in the middle of the night then a few days later of course being able to let my brother in and then of course going and in, 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 you know, hiring a lawyer, standing before a judge. I mean, you know, all of this is, is also in my book and in detail, but then there was this space, this space of really allowing myself to feel about a 10 to 12 years of pain that was literally oh. in the back closet of grief, of anguish, of pain that it just had nowhere to go. And yeah. so then it's, it's, it's here. And I had to, I was wailing, I was screaming, I was crying, I was moaning. I was, I had a full, you know, cathartic experience, almost like a, these emotions really took over me, but that's when I started to fully release. And not only that, it's, it cascaded the next six years of, uh, you know, working with several different kinds of whether it was talk therapy, whether it was, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral techniques, whether it was uh, psychedelics, whether it was, um, you know, emotional freedom tapping and really diving into emotions, sitting with different types of uh, elders, wisdom, sages, shamans, going back to ashrams where my dad went when he was young and I always resisted it going yeah. back to these places and really paying reverence and homage to sitting in my own spirituality. And this is where kind of that spiritual connection really deeply began for me because I was, I was raised in a, you know, multicultural, multi-religious yeah. house. And of course, in a melting pot of Chicago where we went everywhere. We, yeah. uh, many of our close friends. We were in the mosque. We went to Gurdwara. We went to church. My mom was a Catholic. I was a recovering Catholic. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so, but that's where then you ask from, how do you go from victim to victor? This is that personal responsibility piece. I needed to look at my current environment to say, okay, this is not going to fly. And that is the yeah, third aspect of your pounds factor. Yeah. It it's not. And and what what is this common denominator? Well, the common denominator is myself. And <laughs> what is that, that core wound that I'm still kind of surfacing? And that core wound was abandonment. That core wound was, am I good enough? That core wound was, is anyone going to love me? Well, 
we got to start loving ourselves. And I yeah. know it sounds cliche, but it really starts at that at that root of I had to reframe some of the things that I learned when I was younger, which was happiness means working for everybody else. Well, if you're still working for everybody else and working on their happiness, but you're not internally happy and you're not internally focusing on how to pour into you and recognizing what your nervous system feels like, recognizing are you feeling safe in this container of a discussion that we're having, then that's where we need to really build that fourth muscle a little bit, which is our radical self-awareness. In your personal case, you had a level of abuse, let's say, or hardship that sort of woke you up. Mm. I know of many others who got to that same point of, I can't take this anymore, right? we tend to lie to ourselves so so often and and say no i i can i i took this before i'm okay with it this is how my life is i can i can continue what would be the most important signal for someone to connect deeply to find that idea of no no that, i mean do we really have to go through that hardship or can we find out maybe in in the luxury of having a good loving life and a good relationship and why is it that we have to suffer that much to wake up. So, and this is a this is a brilliant question because I think that especially in this day and age, you know, when we're talking about good vibes all day or manifesting the life that we want. Yeah. And you know, there's I'm not going to there's not going to be any hardship or or work ethic for it because things are just going to flow in ease. <laughs> yes. It's a yes and. It's yeah. a it's a yes and. I don't wish anybody to go through, you know, some of the depth, some of the pain that obviously now collectively we see in the world. And there's, there's a lot of that pain. And then when we go into our own personal suffering, there's, there, there is, there is that. And this is not to say somebody who has small T traumas or big T traumas that they vary because all of us will experience some sort of slight, some sort of trauma. And these ruptures, which is what I like to kind of refer to them now as, they are these building blocks to help us build that, of course, that that inner wisdom so that we can expose ourselves to finding love again so that we can expose ourselves to trusting someone again, so that we can expose ourselves to finding forgiveness within ourselves and within the other, because this is the basis of our human experience. It's our interpersonal relationships. This is the biggest commodity that we have. We're not meant to be monks living on a mountain somewhere, not interacting with, with anybody, you know, and I feel like it's, it's why I have so much reverence when I, when I come back to Dubai or even India or even the Philippines is we are doing life relationally together as a collective. And I think many times it's easy to say, ah, I'm just going to forget the world and I'm going to isolate because I don't trust anyone. I don't wanna get hurt again. I don't wanna be betrayed again. I'm not gonna do business with anybody. I'm gonna just keep it all to myself because I don't know what that person's going to do. And we, yeah. we contract, we close up, we harden. Instead of allowing ourselves, and this is the beauty, and this is where the idea of not just the strength of resiliency, but when we think of to bounce back, we're also thinking about the flexibility, the agility, the adaptation for us yeah. to be able to flow through life, sometimes bigness and, and how then we can integrate and transmute and alchemize some of the things that perhaps maybe have knocked us down. And, you know, I, I love this, this kind of uh, segue because in the fly forward method that I talk about in part three of the book, it's really about, you know, when you have a fall, because inevitably we're all going to have a fall, how big or how small, it's just, it depends, but we're all going to have a fall. And what meaning you make of it after 
That's the kicker. Because mm. I could have made a meaning in my life, like you said, Mo, that, oh, life is too hard. I'm going to just skip this one out. I'm going to, and, and, and I've known friends, you know, who've taken their, their life going through big tragedies. And there's also people who do not then trust the world again, or they, they're just stuck in this victim mindset. And if it's you listening to this right now, there is another way. There's another way because there's baby steps. Because maybe today is that ignition. That's step two. Today's that ignition. You're listening to something. You have a nudge from somebody else. Somebody told you to, you know, get the book of that suck now what. Maybe you learn this from another friend or another nudge. These are the signs. This is what we pay attention to, right? Because yeah. you are ready. You're opening yourself to a whole new possibility. So that's step two. Step three is when we're getting into this whole idea of, of rising, which were wobbly. And, and I know that even after my, you know, just leaving the friends that I knew, leaving the house that I knew, starting completely over, I was still in fear. My trauma response was so high. It was very messy before it became okay. I had to move several times because I was in fear of just being followed, et cetera. It was not an easy time by any means. Yeah. Yet to trust, to trust even yourself that, okay, yeah, you know what? I am going to take that improv class. I need to feel a little bit lighter because things around me are feeling a little heavy. Yeah. So to do new, new things and do we need to go through hardships? Well, that's, that's the beauty. That's the juice. That's the juice. Can we avoid the bigger ones? Well, I, I hope that's my hope within this book you know, that suck. Now what is that the blow is a little softer that we're not just running into the wall or beating ourselves up or ruminating around the decisions that we made. Yes. It's in the past. This is why the title is that sucked. It's not this sucks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that would mean that we're still, we're, we're still kind of in the process of what sucked, but I'm giving you a mantra of saying that sucked. Now what? And to say, now I'm, I'm not denying that part happened. I'm not denying your experience of what actually went down. I'm acknowledging it, but I'm also saying, what's your next chapter? What's the now what? What are we going to do next? You seem to put a lot of, of emphasis on spirituality. Is that a necessary part of it? Why, why is spirituality important? So I think it's really, it, it gives us our, or at least, you know, what I've, what I've seen even now in, in many of the businesses that I'm in, I think that spirituality has, has given me life. And, you know, I think even now, as we go through, you know, the studies on longevity and people who live in the blue zones, you know, to 100, one of the things that they have in their full well-being and their full ability to live to uh, become a centenarian is the fact that not only do they have rich relationships and friendships and which is why i talk a lot about being able to repair and have these brave conversations just like you and i are having the other big thing is to be able to have a sense of some sort of faith that yeah to be able to connect the dots of, well, who am I now? What is my, what is my purpose here? And it doesn't have to be this big mission to impact a million lives. It could just be, you know, I'm going to be the best friend that I can be for this person, or I'm going to be, you know, the best mom that I can be, or I'm go going to focus on really ho hoping that we can alleviate the pain of humanity in some way. It could be audacious goals, it could be minor, but to have that sense of purpose, that sense, you know, the Japanese, of course, they call it the ikigai. Yeah. You know, the Vedic philosophy, we call it dharma. Yeah. What is your 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 life's work? And I I really believe many of our points of our hero's journey or our heroine's journey 
is really to wake us up to the becoming of ourselves, to really understand, okay, who am I in this in this stage and phase of life? And and that's kind of the beauty. And this is what I asked you guys on on my podcast too. It's like I always end with kind of that question: is who are you in this stage and season of life? Yeah, because we're constantly evolving. And if we were if we were meant to be stuck at you know the same place. I don't think we would be having this conversation right now. I think that's really key because, you know, the whole the whole concept of this is not waste. Hardship is not a waste of your life. Hardship actually is probably your entire life. That, you know, that when you when you go through those things, as Alice was saying on your podcast, you're it's either because life wants you to change something outwardly or inwardly. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. you have to heal something or change some of your behaviors, right? And and it's it's quite interesting when you when you really look back at those moments in your life and and really assess all of the pain and all of the benefit of making you the person that you are, you end up eventually saying, Well, do I really want to change that? Do I want to take it back? Uh, looking at it from this vantage point. Okay. And it's quite difficult because for most people, if you give some kind of hardship enough years for most people, not all people, some people still assume the victim's mentality, you know, for most people, they'll say, no, I'll I'll take the hardship again. If it means that I get to where I am, the purpose of where I, you know, the purpose for which I came to this life needed that learning experience so that I become this person. And I think this is really where most people miss the point. They, yes, of course, we don't want the pain, we don't want the hardship, but we still want the gain and somehow they seem to be associated. Oh, 100%. I think that's the beauty and the contrast of, of life, isn't it? You know, we have the we have the duality. We have yeah. the these these necessary paradoxes, and I think that even we take the weather. If it was sunny all day, we would take it for granted. Yeah. And yet, when we have a week of of rain or the thunderstorms, then when that sunrise comes, that first sunrise, you're like, oh yeah, this is this is what it's all about. And I think that sweet nectar of that, you know, metaphor is also present even in our daily lives, right? The next, the next love on the horizon. You just got married again, you know, and even me finding the, (laughs) you know, and, and me finding the love of my life, right? Again, after trusting in myself and and in that experience, I think for whoever is in that crossroads or intersection know that there's a bigger play here and every single thing that has happened in your life has led you to where you are today whether it's listening yes. to this conversation whether it's maybe making you question something in your life maybe it's making you think completely differently or have a different perspective but it's it's all led up to allowing you to even be in this energy and and even you and I uh there there have been times where uh I think we could have had this conversation several different points but uh, I yeah, think even absolutely. even yeah and even now I think it's even you know the the best time so I think that it's allowing yourself to trust that timing but we have to also be aware of that and if you're asking the questions for those of you listening and watching maybe there's something else that is beginning to unravel for you. And that's something to really pay attention to. Because like you said, Mo, it's it's not wasted. It's yeah. actually one of the most beautiful things that we can actually garner from our our experience of life is that these hardships can turn into magical moments if we allow them to. And yet the the pain and the hurt we can actually transform into beautiful moments, whether it's, and this is the, you know, the last part of the the fly forward framework is when you get into that magnify stage, you are mostly, maybe it's you're giving back to other people. Maybe you're volunteering at an organization. Maybe you're taking time out of your week to spend time teaching other people. I remember for me, when I got out of that 
abusive relationship, I started a nonprofit. You know, it wasn't going to be the biggest nonprofit in the world, but I started something to kind of start giving back. And it it was uh, it was called the project was called Independent Awakening. And it then became a mission for, you know, young girls and young women of color in the U.S. to give them a place to really build the skills of confidence and the tools for them to step into their self-love. And so it starts with our inner game, but then we start to collectively contribute yeah. to the masses. It is staggering really with when you recognize this, you mentioned love and Hannah and I were actually working on, we now call it finders keepers and finding love together. And oh, that's uh, so sweet. It's, a, it's a lovely project that I, you know, when I, I, most of my listeners will know I worked on this book for love and romance for a very long time. And uh, every time I finish it, I feel that it's not ready. And, you know, Hannah coming in as with her therapy background, basically sits down with me and says, oh, no, 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 you, you, you see, this is because you're saying it this way, that doesn't include exactly the person's, you know, own script and own story and so on. It's becoming a lot richer, but it, it is, today we were discussing that idea of accountability once again. So even when it comes to, you know, our romantic relationships and being in an abusive or a wonderful relationship anywhere or anywhere in between on the, on the spectrum, we tend to always blame the other guy. It's like, or either other girl. It's like, even in my mind, there were scripts that were saying, oh, it's because women will expect this or women will want that. Or, you know, that generalization of women is because of my own sample size, which was, you know, attracting what I needed in my life, what I needed to learn. And at a point in time, you have to take that accountability and say, what am I contributing to this? Why is life treating me this way? Right? Why is it that I am stuck in that almost Groundhog Day-like cycle of, you know, have I delivered the purpose for which the hardship is arriving? I think is the big question. I want to close with a, <laughs> you know, it's a comment, not a question. It's sort of rhetorical, but I, I want to say it. I mean, isn't it quite audacious to say joy? in chaos or something like, you know, shouldn't it be, be that, you know, that sucked now what, uh, how to survive chaos? <laughs> em embrace joy and chaos. Isn't that a bit too much to ask when people are going through the tough times? <sighs> so this was actually also inspired when I entered motherhood. And this was kind of the next level or the next iteration of me really. And I think for, you know, a lot of people really going through significant change, significant change, significant change, chaos. And whether you're moving, whether you are, you know, kind of in the intersection of a full change, things can be chaotic. And yeah. I think it's so easy to diminish the feeling of that because we want to we want to shut it down. We want to shut yeah. it down. And our society has really told us that these big feelings have no place. And when I was going through the throes of motherhood with my son, and then this was during COVID, and I started to have these brave conversations, you know, I, we were, our family, we were living in LA at the time and we were going through, you know, really the heavy lockdowns and we decided as a family, my son was, uh, at this point he was two and we decided to move completely mm. and uprooting our lives. And this too, I was pregnant with my daughter and I had the most like horrendous, you know, sickness and it was everything, every life happenings, like happening all consecutively. We started another company and I was almost submitting my book proposal and we're moving at the same time. I mean, it was just every single area of life. Yeah. And I think for many of us, when we're going through life transitions in whatever way, shape or form, it can be chaotic. But my question is, can we find the slivers of joy in that process? 
can we find the slivers of joy just like when we're going through loss? And there's a beautiful uh, graphic towards the end of my book around the dualities. Can you be open in finding love? Like we were just talking about you and Hannah, but maybe still a little skeptical and reserved. Absolutely, mm. those feelings can exist at the same time. Mm. So why couldn't you, especially if you're in this maybe season of life that maybe you did start a new business and maybe you did find love because that tends to happen all at the same time. And maybe you are having uh, traction in whatever project is going on, but maybe you started to have a family. Life is going to throw these curveballs, And yeah. are we going to say, ah, no to the chaos. I'm allowing you to say, yes, it's going to suck. Maybe you're going to suck at something new. <laughs> and maybe it's not going to be that bad because you know what? We've acknowledged it because most of the time when we are thinking about a thought, when we are allowing it to ruminate or thinking about the process in which how that conversation should have played out or the conversation with asking for a raise, et cetera, but we didn't do a good job and then we beat ourselves up, it's here. But what if we actually acknowledged it and shared it out loud to release the pressure valve of our mind to say, okay, I'm feeling anxious right now. Yeah. I am feeling X. I am not X. I'm not anxious. As a person, as a being, as an identity, I am just feeling this way. And so that's been my hope is yes, to poke fun and to make it light because I I have gone through a lot of dark and as as mm. many of your listeners yeah I you know and I think I see your face and 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 I see you Mo and and you're also just we're we're softies on the inside <laughs> no <laughs> <And> I think <laughs> that's not true I am a very um I'm a monster that's that's who I am people dealing I don't with me so. should know that yeah but I think can we can we actually have levity in, you know, finding magic in the mess while we're embracing the joy and chaos? And that's what I mean by that. Isn't that what it's all about? I, I actually will close on this because you see, you see the funny bit is you can find joy in everything. Nothing ever comes all bad or all good, right? We, we know that for a fact. But the bit that is so puzzling for me is that the pain will remain to be the pain, whether you lighten it up or not, okay? The loss will remain to be the loss, whether you lighten it up or not. It's like, you know, you can soften the blow a little bit by telling yourself, and where is the joy in that? Like, where are the good parts? I, I have to tell you openly, when I went to my brother's funeral to be there, basically yeah. to receive people, Mm. all of the hugs and all of the people that I haven't seen for 20 years and all of the, of the, of the real, you feel the real empathy and compassion and love of people. And, you know, being there with my nephews and nieces and being there with my mom and, you know, the coffee that I have in the morning with my mom afterwards and the deep conversation and the you know, memories that we shared with Amr and Sahar and, you know, and it, and it really is quite interesting because those are also true. You see that the loss is true and the pain of missing him and, and my sister, I don't call her my sister-in-law is true, but all of that other compensating love, if you want, all of those others that come to our lives are also true. Like, why are we ignoring those? You know what I mean? And and so it becomes true. quite interesting when, when we would have the tendency to choose to focus on one side and not the other, and yet blame life for our sufferings. Right. It's quite interesting that, that life is saying, hey, by the way, it's just a sweet and sour, right? Don't just eat the sour, just also eat the sweet with it. And together they're an interesting thing, right? And, and we it's go, like, no, it's, it's too sour. We don't want that. And it's so interesting how humanity does this. I love that courage that you have in this book to say, don't just live through it. Don't just be resilient, but find the joy. I think that's a big statement. It's huge. It's, yeah. it's huge. And I just want to say thank you for, you know, this amazing conversation and, and honoring your audience in the way that you show up and your passion and your dedication. It's just, it's, oh, it's, my. it's amazing to see. Thank you. You, you make it, you make it look like a, a job. I know th this. I love <laughs> this. Oh my God. I love this. <laughs>
I cannot thank you enough for being here after such mm. a long trip. And Nita, you've uh, you've always been the example of what you preach. You know, you show up mm. positively. You're always looking at life with a an optimistic lens that I think is fantastic and something to learn from. And, uh, you know, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you shared. Thank you for your time when you were here in Dubai. And, that was fun. Uh, yeah, and uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Yeah, mm -hmm. for all of you listening, I am very grateful for the chance that you give me to just um, book some of my good friends for for a catch up and then have you guys watch it and calling that a podcast. So uh, yeah, I I love you all for, for giving me the chance to do that. I love you all for really, I realize more and more how diligent some of you are to to actually listen every Sunday or watch every Sunday evening. And I think that's really wonderful that uh, that those conversations happen to be important to you. Do share them, do spread them. Uh, it does make a huge difference when uh, more people are uh, watching the podcast uh, or listening to it. So, so please do that. And uh, yeah, find a bit of time to look at your own life, take your own accountability, love your own fate and take the action and flow. I think that's really uh, the answer to living a life of joy despite the hardship. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.